Welcome to the Spiral Inquiry Podcast, where we explore the foundations of science, faith, and philosophy. In 2016, the Institute for Religion in an Age of Science devoted their conference to the topic, How Can We Know? Co-Creating Knowledge in Perilous Times. They invited me to present a paper on the empirical standard for knowing faith misplaced. We're going to cover this material in two parts. Today, in part one, I will introduce the articles of faith that underpin empirical knowledge and explore the questions raised in the context of relativity and complexity theory. The challenge we face in seeking to understand the world is analogous to the challenge we face in grasping the well-known goblet illusion. Is it a picture of a goblet or an image of two faces staring at each other? The answer is, of course, that it is both. Yet it is extremely difficult for our human brains to fully comprehend both at the same time. I suggest that scientific knowledge is like the foreground image, the goblet, prominent and immediate to our senses. Spiritual knowledge is more elusive, like the faces in the background, and requires greater imaginative effort to keep in focus. The image of the two faces also offers a starting point for the primary thesis of this paper, that the interrelated phenomena of consciousness, awareness, attention, reflection, contemplation, and intention inevitably give rise to paradox and mystery. While we will never be able to fully comprehend and know the world, we can seek to transcend the paradoxical and the mysterious with a higher level of understanding, incorporating both empirical and spiritual influences. Section 2. The Purpose of Knowing The human story is wonderfully rich and complex. And that story has been the subject of study for a vast array of thinkers, philosophers, poets, and theologians since before the dawn of recorded history. One key thread of that story involves the apparently unique capacity of humans for reflective consciousness, the ability to observe and create conceptual models for the patterns and regularities that we experience in the world around us. This consciousness the activity of engaging with and theorizing about the world is characterized by an, an inherent dualism between the embodied conscious self and the objectified world of which we are a part and with which we interact. We seek to understand and to bend that world to our purposes, purposes that include survival, the pursuit of pleasure, the avoidance of pain, and the maximization of personal fulfillment in its many forms. We've come to name this understanding of the world and the mastery of it as knowing. Knowing is at its core a personal and subjective enterprise. We each absorb and interpret our direct experience of the world and seek to make sense of it, to bring order to it. We learn to use our hands, to build tools, and to master complex skills. We're also provided with powerful mental capacities that assist our learning, intuition, imagination, and creativity. Our minds are predisposed to seek out and interpret patterns, whether they are the locations and seasons for edible foods, the behavior of predators and prey, 
the fleeting and subtle expressions on the faces of our companions, or the abstract meaning of symbols and sounds. We order, structure, interpret, and engage with the world as animate and purposeful. At the same time, we are fundamentally social creatures. We are inextricably embedded in a human community by birth, by sociality, and by language. We share and communicate our feelings, our experiences, and our ideas about the world. This process builds a complex shared culture of stories, ideas, myths, and revelations guiding our relationships with each other and our interactions with the world. A collective knowing that enriches and vastly expands our personal knowing. If this personal and collective knowing is successful in leading us to well-being and mastery, to personal and collective thriving, then we invest it with a special quality as truth and pass it on to future generations and across cultures. This process of adjusting, refining, redefining, and reinventing human knowledge is evolutionary. Over time, humanity discovered and developed increasingly sophisticated observations, useful technologies, and complex institutions that led to expanded knowledge and its application to the management and control of our physical and social environment. Agriculture, trade, and empire became possible. Human civilization accelerated and knowledge expanded. Superfluity created the opportunity for specialists, priests, and philosophers to dedicate their lives to codifying and exploring knowledge for its own sake. Religion, art, architecture, literature, ritual, and performance became increasingly sophisticated, woven deeply into human culture and life. Humans thrived. In recent centuries, roughly the last thousand years, humans learned techniques and invented tools for precisely measuring and categorizing the regularities of the natural processes in the world. Natural philosophy, or empirical science, was born and became a key partner with human aspirations. The resulting technological and material development, particularly in the past few centuries, created the conditions for human thriving on a vastly expanded scale. This includes a current worldwide human population of about 8 billion and an immense and complex infrastructure for the production and accumulation of a vast array of physical goods, comforts, and gratifications. We have indeed bent the world to our purposes. Section 3. The Success of Empirical Knowing The scale of human achievement in the past two millennia is staggering. For the first thousand years, the human standard of living averaged a little over $400 a year per capita, and the population grew slightly to about 250 million. After that, both population and living standards began to jump upward. Changes in worldwide trade and technology provided opportunities for significant increases in resource exploitation and commerce. In the roughly 800 years that followed, per capita GDP nearly doubled. In the same period, the human population also tripled. After 1800, the impact of the scientific and industrial revolution 
in the past two centuries, per capita GDP increased almost tenfold, a full order of magnitude. Population also increased by nearly an order of magnitude to six billion. This means that total global production of goods and services factoring in both population and per capita GDP increased at a level approaching two orders of magnitude, a hundredfold increase in two centuries. It's no wonder then that this extraordinary success derived from advances in empirical science and material technology has been accompanied by a growing empirical ethos. As human economic progress exploded, particularly in the 20th century, our shared culture has become increasingly secular and materialist. Why should we pay attention to moral, spiritual, mythological, poetic, aesthetic, spiritual, or religious impulses, experiences, or teachings, when science and its exclusive preoccupation with the empirical regularities of the physical world has proven so powerful and effective at meeting our needs and satisfying our desires. To many, empirical science appears to be the only knowledge, indeed the only truth, that we would ever need. To some, any suggestion that there are categories of knowing beyond the empirical is derided as delusion, hallucination, or superstition. Section 4, The Limitations of Empirical Knowing Setting aside the question of physical limitations to the resource exploitation that underlies our two centuries of explosive materialism, there are fundamental epistemological limits to the empirical worldview and its various manifestations, materialism, physicalism, reductionism, determinism, scientism, or commercialism. The empirical worldview fails to acknowledge these limits. That failure has resulted in a denial of other dimensions of human knowing and the impoverishment of the human experience. Scientific truth is fundamentally limited in two distinct ways. First, the enterprise of science itself is grounded on first principles that cannot be proved. They are articles of faith. By proved in this context, I mean proved by deduction beyond the possibility of doubt. Proof by induction or generalization, in contrast, is always subject to the possible disproof from a single counterexample. These tenets of faith include the general principles that, one, the regularities we observe in the physical world are reliable, consistent, and enduring. Two, these regularities are rational and comprehensible. And three, Mathematics is the language by which we can best explore and describe these regularities. I have no real disagreement with these articles of faith. Faith in the regularity and comprehensibility of the physical world is a necessary condition to knowing of any kind. But we need to recognize that these are not provable truth claims. Empirically, we have no way of proving that the world tomorrow will exhibit the same regularities as the world today, and no way of knowing that these regularities will be comprehensible to us or be amenable to the tools of mathematics. 
We also cannot prove why these principles, and not others, work. Renowned physicist Eugene Wigner, in a famous 1960 paper titled The Unreasonable Effectiveness of Mathematics in the Natural Sciences, stated, for example, quote, the miracle of the appropriateness of the language of mathematics for the formulation of the laws of physics is a wonderful gift which we neither understand nor deserve. We also need to recognize that the above tenets of faith do not exclude religion. It's entirely consistent to have deep faith in a creator God while holding fast to a belief in empirical science. Most of the great scientists through history, including Newton and Einstein, have indeed seen the order and beauty revealed by empirical science as manifestations of God. Yet modern secular science has tended to discard a faith in God or in any universal and has adopted certain additional tenets of faith, ones that I argue impose unwarranted metaphysical conditions that prohibit many reasonable hypotheses from consideration. These include the following. Four, the world is fundamentally random. There is no purposeful intentionality or agency involved in its functioning. Five, the world is causally determined from small to large, from past to future. Reductionism is methodologically exclusive. And six, the physical world is all there is. There are no non-physical causes, no miracles, and to some, no mystery. These additional three principles, like the first three, are not scientific laws, and they cannot be proven, even though many scientists believe them to be true. In fact, they are articles of faith. Moreover, I believe these three are unwarranted, and they often serve as dogmatic preconditions that confine knowledge to merely the empirical realm. As such, they seriously undermine the opportunity for dialogue and mutual understanding. Ultimately, they confine the range of human knowledge and deny the true richness and depth of the human experience. The second, and perhaps more significant, limitation to scientific truth, as I discuss in the body of my presentation, is that modern science and mathematics are increasingly confronted with fundamental paradoxes that cannot and will not be resolved. These conundrums point to the existence of a level of knowing that is inaccessible from within the physical and mathematical constructs of empirical science. The common feature of these paradoxes rests, in my opinion, on the inherent dualisms of consciousness and creation. Once the universe awakens to itself, which happens through the abstract forms of mathematics, the manifestations of the physical world, and sentient consciousness, the reality of its incomprehensibility as a whole becomes manifest. The empirical ethos excludes from admissible reality a variety of things that are critical to human life and experience. These include the subjective reality of internal contemplation, self-awareness, and the problem of qualia in philosophy. 
The mechanism of intention and choice, of free will, also does not sit well with the empirical tenets. In spite of the evidence that these are inherent features of individuals, quantum particles, and the universe as a whole. The hard problem of consciousness, the problem of the observer in quantum physics, and the peculiarities of both infinity and recursive functions in mathematics remain unaddressed. Finally, love and the grand arena of feelings, affections, and motivations the very things that give meaning to our lives and to the universe as a whole are largely disregarded as invisible. For these reasons, I suggest that adherence to an empirical standard for knowing reflects a faith that is misplaced. At its worst, such faith becomes an unquestioning and ideological dogma. But even in its more benign forms, the empirical standard limits unnecessarily the range of human knowing. Understanding these limits opens the door for a broader and deeper appreciation of the human experience, a potential range of knowing that can tap into the deep roots of our rich human heritage and our subjective and interpersonal experiences. Knowing is possible only through faith that reaches beyond the empirical to a spiritual knowing that aspires to the transcendent. Section 5, The Arrow of Time From the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam The moving finger writes, and having writ moves on, nor all your piety nor wit shall lure it back to cancel half a line, nor all your tears wash out a word of it. This is one of the most famous quatrains in the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam, a work that captured my imagination as a teenager for its puzzles and riddles and the ironic tone it uses in dealing with deep philosophical issues. This quatrain addresses the directionality of time, one of the most challenging issues in modern physics, a challenge that was precipitated by Albert Einstein's theory of special relativity, published in 1905. Before Einstein's paper, the prevailing Newtonian concept was that space was a fixed frame of reference for objects moving in time. This concept is consistent with our normal experience. Objects appear and move within a fixed background reference frame. We can measure things with a yardstick and we can monitor their motion with a clock. But physicists at the time were dealing with, the pheno with phenomena operating well outside of normal experience. In the Michelson-Morley experiments of 1887, for example, scientists began to find that there was a difference in the speed of light for moving or stationary observations consistent with Newtonian physics. Think of a train moving towards you if you are stationary, you will observe the train at one speed. But if you are moving toward the train, the train will appear to be moving faster and the train whistle will sound higher in pitch. That's the Doppler effect we are all familiar with. The scientists knew that the Earth was spinning and moving through space, so they cleverly measured the speed of light in the direction of motion and at the same time perpendicular to the motion but they could detect no difference. This was a big problem. 
Einstein's theory solved the problem in a remarkably elegant way by redefining the relationship of space and time. They don't provide a fixed frame of reference. In particular, objects and events in time and space will be perceived differently by two observers based on their relative position and motion. The only phenomenon that both will observe to be the same is the speed of light, which is constant and finite in all directions and circumstances. For practical purposes, this revolution did not change our world. We live in a way that could be characterized as non-relativistic and largely local. We will never have the chance to travel at near the speed of life, so we will never experience the time dilation effect as Matthew McConaughey does in the movie Interstellar from 2014. That storyline is a version of the famous twin paradox that emerged from Einstein's theory. Given the nature of relativity, if one of two identical twins sets off in a spaceship at near the speed of light and then returns, the traveling twin will be much younger than the stay-at-home twin. The twin paradox is not the only puzzling feature of special relativity. Based on Einstein's theory, physicists have reframed the conception of space and time as a four-dimensional topological manifold referred to as Minkowski space. This four-dimensional space has been characterized as a loaf of space-time. Any given slice of the loaf, or conic section to be precise, represents one observer's frame of reference as a function of their location and motion. Different observers in different locations traveling at different speeds result in slicing the loaf quite differently. Considering the entire universe as a whole, there is an observer somewhere in the universe for whom our past is their present and, correspondingly, an observer for whom our future is their present. Past, present, and future are all there. This yields a peculiar form of observational determinism, the sense that our future has, in someone's reference frame, already happened. Another remarkable feature of the fundamental laws of physics, including Newton's laws of motion, Einstein's theory of relativity and gravity, Maxwell's laws of electromagnetism, and the Schroeder equa equations of quantum physics, is that they are all symmetrical with respect to time. In other words, all of these laws are time invariant. They work equally well going forward in time as going backward. They do not require that time only move in one direction and they do not explain time's directionality, what many call the arrow of time. While this is remarkable, it is also inconsistent with one of the key regularities of the physical world we live in, that time only goes one way. It's perhaps not surprising then that physicists repeatedly tell us that our common sense understanding of time is an illusion. Section 6, Entropy and Complexity. From the Rubiat. What, without asking, hither hurried whence? And, without asking, whither hurried hence? Oh, many a cup of this forbidden wine must drown the memory of that insolence. 
The arrow of time can be found in another field of science, thermodynamics, the study of how energy behaves in dynamic systems. We are all, I suspect, familiar with the first law of thermodynamics, the conservation of energy. In a closed system, energy cannot be created or destroyed. The second law of thermodynamics points to another feature of energetic behavior in closed systems. A system, whatever its initial configurations, always and inevitably progresses towards states of increasing homogeneity or sameness. Release gas into a closed box and it will eventually fill the box in an even distribution. The technical measure for this homogeneity is entropy, and the second law states that entropy always increases. A block of ice melts and becomes a puddle of water. An egg falls and breaks and, like Humpty Dumpty, cannot be reassembled. The structure and morphology of the starting points of ice or egg have been lost. The end states of water and broken egg are all mixed up and the starting structures can never be reassembled. Entropy has increased. This is indeed consistent with our perceptions and notions of the effects of time. We know perfectly well what time is in our lives. We remember the past, we experience the present, we anticipate the future, and we cannot go backwards. These are real experiences. They are not illusions. From this perspective, it seems that relativity and the time invariance of the physicist formulas have left something important out. And that is the real illusion. One additional puzzling aspect to the story of time is the fact that all of the interesting structures we see in the universe, including planetoids, stars and galaxies, crystals and fluid flow, life forms, human technology and creativity, seem to violate the second law. If time is the process of the universe running down by transitioning from the low entropy conditions of the Big Bang to states of increasing homogeneity and higher entropy, then where do the remarkable cosmological features of stars and galaxies as well as the complex phenomena of chemistry and biology come from. These phenomena all seem to reflect an increase in order, structure, and variety, quite at odds with the second law's imperative for homogeneity from increasing entropy. This is, in fact, the case. All of these phenomena are local violations of the second law. Local structure and order emerges by exporting entropy to the larger environment. The entire universe as a whole continues to run down towards some icy and inevitable death state. But as it does, local pockets of increasing organization and structure emerge. An explanation for how this counter-entropic process operates to bring order, structure, and growth is found in the theory of nonlinear dynamic systems pioneered by Ilya Prigione and others. The theory posits that in open dynamic systems where energy is in flux, stable structures tend to emerge in the otherwise chaotic flow. These structures succeed by dissipating the energy within the chaotic flow efficiently. 
For example, when we open the drain at the bottom of a sink, the water molecules rush for the drain, bouncing and jostling in a disorganized and turbulent chaos. Yet we can see then the swirl of a whirlpool, a stable and orderly structure emerge. What we are watching is the transformation that the dynamic nonlinear system of flowing water is going through as it seeks out a state that maximizes the official local dissipation of energy. The result is a stable, persistent structure. Remarkably, all of the structures we see and study in the universe, from cosmological and geological to chemical and biological, indeed, including all of life, ecology, even economics, are the result of dynamic systems that exhibit this behavior. Snowflakes form in the dynamic chaos of moisture-laden clouds and complex, beautiful, and fragile crystalline forms of nearly infinite variety emerge. Turbulence in water results in swirling eddies, dancing waves, and shimmering surfaces, all evidence of order and structure emerging from chaotic, dynamic processes. The flocking of birds in a configuration known as a murmuration creates a dancing, spiraling pattern. The birds themselves follow simple, instinctive flight rules, but a form of intelligence and remarkable sophistication emerges from their simple behaviors, as it does in every bee and ant colony. The human immune system, consisting of many interlocking feedback loops acting in the complex soup of biochemistry and cellular dynamics, creates a powerful and purposeful functionality of human biology. Even the simplest of living structures, such as a sunflower, a mindless and immobile plant, produces a beautifully ordered and structured flower. In minimizing the energy used in growing the flower, the plant follows the simple rules of the Fibonacci sequence and the golden ratio, resulting in a structure with multiple interlocking spirals spinning both right and left. So, while time proceeds forward, marking the gradual buildup of entropy throughout the universe, the dynamic nature of this forward progress leads to the emergence of increasing complexity and variability to life itself and ultimately to human consciousness. From this perspective, it seems that the physicist's proclamations that time is an illusion is quite insupportable. The dynamics of movement through time is, indeed, the basis for all of the interesting stuff that happens in the universe. However, the interesting behaviors of these nonlinear dynamic systems, the structures that fill the universe, raise uncomfortable questions about causality and teleology. What is the cause of the order that emerges? How does a crystal structure itself? How does intelligence emerge from unintelligent creatures, such as birds, cells, or plants? The challenge is that emergent processes are counter-reductionist. They cannot be explained in terms of bottom-up causation. Moreover, the behaviors that emerge are purposeful and not random. How does one reconcile this with the unwarranted tenets of faith we discussed earlier? That's enough for today. Please continue listening in your podcast feed for part two of the empirical standard of knowing, faith misplaced. 
Thanks for listening to the Spiral Inquiry Podcast. I'm your host, George Gans. Be sure to subscribe for more podcasts and please visit spiralinquiry.org to explore the intersection of science, faith, and philosophy and to contribute your own ideas to the conversation. 